chapter 14. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we sure want you to have a Bible to follow along with your own eyes. There are men coming up the aisle right now that have Bibles. If you just get their attention by waving to them or something, they'll get a Bible into your hands and you can follow along with us, not only with your ears, but also with your eyes. On Sunday mornings, we are studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we come this morning to John's Gospel Chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus speaking declared, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to build our lives and our eternities upon the truth of it, Lord. We've never been disappointed by your wisdom and by your truth of your word. We've been disappointed and ashamed of much of the other wisdom that we followed in life before we came to know you, but never ashamed of you. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would, by your very active and present Holy Spirit, cause these verses to have the full work of comfort and encouragement and perspective that they are intended to bring to your people, Lord, that that work would be accomplished in each of our lives this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I really love this passage of the Bible. I love the whole Bible. But I really, really love these three verses. And almost always when I read these three verses, I receive what they are intended to impart to me and to every Christian who reads them, but I, I can almost never fail to think about how these three verses have comforted and encouraged and kept God's people, their head, uh, out of water for 2,000 years. All the different trials that we face in this world, all of the obstacles and troubles that we face in this world. You think about how many people through 2,000 years of history all over the world and every kind of culture imaginable. God has given life to these three verses to bring perspective to us in the midst of great trouble. And we can face great trouble in this fallen world. I think perhaps some of us here this morning, this is one of your favorite passages in all of the Bible. And the reason it has become one of your favorite passages in all of the Bible is because how God used it to bring you through a time of trouble or difficulty in your life. And it's an important passage really for all of us, for every Christian, because every single one of us as Christians are going to have heart trouble at times in this world We all have difficult times. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. 
He is in an upper room with his now 11 disciples, soon to become the apostles, on the night before his crucifixion. And we're told here in verse 1 that these disciples are troubled. And the word troubled there in the original language literally means to be agitated or to be disturbed. Now, when it talks about them being agitated, it doesn't mean that they're bugged. Or it doesn't mean that they're getting on one another's word, on one another's nerves. We can use the word being agitated in that way. But it's really a word picture. And the idea is of the condition of the waves of the ocean being agitated during a great storm. As they're so large and so powerful and throwing everything that's on them around like a, you know, a matchstick. And so it is that that is the kind of thing that it's speaking about the waves of the sea during a great storm. Or if we wanted to put it on a smaller level, it could speak of the agitation or the wash uh, part of the cycle of a washing machine, that violent churning that occurs in a washing machine during the agitation cycle. When I was a kid, Uh, Now they label the washing machines a little bit different. But back in those days, you could look on the face of the washing machine and there was actually a, a part of the cycle that was called the agitation cycle. And that was the wash cycle where you would look into the washing machine and it was when the the agitation or the movement of the water, the sloshing of it all over the movement of the clothes in the water was at its peak in the entire uh, cycle of, of the washing machine. Now, our family, when we were growing up, were like were like many, many families in those days. We couldn't afford a washing machine or a dryer as a family. So each week we'd take our clothes to the laundromat on a Saturday at the end of the school week. And that was one of the responsibilities that my twin brother and I had was to make sure everything got properly washed and dried and uh, folded each Saturday. Now, if you've never been to a laundromat, it's a very interesting experience. It's uh, they're fairly boring places for a kid to be for two or three hours. Almost always all the good magazines are ripped off. People steal them if anybody puts a decent magazine in there to pass the time by. And you're usually left only with religious literature of the most dubious kind. And so you are you after a while, you read through those a little bit and you realize, OK, I'm not going to read any of this. How in the world does a young boy amuse himself in a laundromat? Well, one of the ways is by watching the clothes get washed in the washing machine. So you have a front load washing machine and, and very easy to watch as the agitation and the waves and the storm, so to speak, and all of it going on. And you would pick out something that was colorful, maybe a red sock as if anyone had red socks, something colorful in it. And you would watch as it would uh, appear right before the glass. And then you would watch it disappear among the rest of the clothes and uh, time how long it would be before it would reappear in front of the glass. The the top loading washers you discovered pretty quickly. You could lift them up and hold in the safety button and make it completely unsafe. And... uh, Lift the lid and the machine would just keep doing what it was doing. And 
The most exciting stage in the entire uh, wash cycle was the agitation cycle because you just watched everything churning, disappearing, reappearing. Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that I had the most exciting childhood in history. It was just my childhood. And that's one of the things that we did. Now, one of the interesting things about the agitation cycle is that's how the clothes got cleaned without an agitation cycle. You don't end up with clean clothes at the end of the entire, you know, quarter's worth of whatever you paid for. The same thing is true in the spiritual life, because God uses these times of troubles to overrule them and he uses them to cleanse our lives. A lot is going to be cleansed from these disciples by virtue of the trouble that they were about to go through. They certainly were going to be cleansed of their self-confidence and their pride and their competitiveness and in infighting with one another. These men are going to come out of this difficult time in their lives as very, very different men. But the most important thing that needed to happen while all of this was being cleansed out in this agitation cycle is that they wouldn't lose their faith or their confidence in God's calling upon their lives while it was happening. I remember also as a young boy, a toy that was uh, enjoyable to me, uh, lots of toys. In those days, all of the toys, there was there were no electric cords that went to the toys. There were no controls to the toys or video games. But I always used to love a top, to watch a top spin. If I went to your house and you had a top or a series of tops, I'd be gone for half an hour trying all of them out. I just love the beauty and the motion of a top where you'd put that plunger down on it. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. But you take that plunger and you would put it down as hard as you could and you would see that pattern that was on the top of the top. And I have one in my office that is a dog chasing a cat and you put it down and they just become a blur like a cartoon. So you put that plunger down or you whip the string and it hops out there and you and you watch it. It really is poetry in motion. It's mesmerizing. It's just beautiful. And then you watch this thing as it's it's got its momentum and it's it's moving and spinning so gracefully. I mean, no two tops are the same, but pretty soon you begin to notice that it's starting to lose momentum. And then to the keen eye of the top watcher, you'd begin to notice the first wobble in it. And if you were really good at it, it'd begin to spin from one side to the other to wobble. And you could guess the instant it would fall on, the, on its side and then slide across the room. And at this moment in time in the lives of the disciples... It's like that top is wobbling at its greatest, just about ready to spin across the floor. That's the condition of their hearts. Everything seems to be spinning out of control. But they were not only not only were they troubled, but they were troubled for good reason. Sometimes we're troubled as Christians for no good reason. That's a different Bible study. They're troubled for good reason. 
Their immediate future is absolutely terrifying to them. Jesus has told them he's going away. He's told them that one of them is going to outright betray him. He's just told them that before the night is over, they're all going to deny that they even know him. These disciples are facing literally the three darkest days in human history immediately in front of them. Now you stop and you ask yourself, what in the world could Jesus say to such a person in order to bring comfort to a heart that is facing that and is that troubled? And I think it's fascinating to notice what Jesus tells the disciples. And he tells them only two things to comfort them. Doesn't give them ten steps to conquering fear. Doesn't give them 65 keys for handling a, a, a crisis in, in their life. He just tells them two things. And I think he tells them two things because when our hearts are in the same place that these disciples find their hearts in, two things is about all you can handle. It's about all you can process. And it certainly is about all that you can remember. So Jesus tells them just two things. Someone has said that sorrow needs simple words for its consolation. And it's true. When we go visit somebody in the hospital, it isn't a time for a 50-minute sermon. It isn't a time of telling them, now here's 20 things that Christians should do when they're hospitalized. You ever come to visit me when I'm in the hospital? Don't give me some kind of a treatise on angels or try to reconcile predestination and free moral agency. I'll probably strangle you with my own hands, depending on my condition in the hospital. All I want at that moment is someone to come into that room and tell me how great my God is. Speak to me of his power, of his love and of his Wisdom. The first thing that Jesus tells them is in verse one is to simply trust him. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. It's so simple, isn't it? But I tell you, it is the simple things that grow more and more precious to me the longer I walk with the Lord. When I was early as a Christian, just this voracious hunger for the word of God and the things of God. In my mind, I thought that Christianity would be going from complexity to greater complexity to greater complexity. And I found just the opposite is true. I'm glad for all of the complexity and depth of the Christian life. I'm glad to have invested time on to some degree of exploring it. But the longer I've walked with the Lord, the simpler all of this gets. And the more important, the simple truths of the Christian life are important to me. The things that I've heard a thousand times before, but that I need to hear over and over again. And so Jesus simply tells them to believe in me. He said, trust me. Just trust me. And I love the simplicity of it. I love the sweetness of it. Now, Jesus wasn't asking them for blind faith. He's asking them to trust in a faith that they had with him that was well proven. 
Because he had proved himself faithful in their lives, in every circumstance of their lives, since they had come to know him. He had been sufficient in the face of a crowd of 5,000, feeding them with five loaves and two fish. He'd calmed the seas before their very eyes. He'd raised the dead. He healed the sick. He had cast out demons before their very eyes. All of the three and a half years that they had walked with him, he'd been completely sufficient for every need that they had. He had not only met those needs, but overwhelmed those needs. They weren't facing those things now, though. They're facing something new, something they hadn't faced before. And so they were troubled. But Jesus is telling them, even though the circumstances had changed, he hasn't changed. And they needed to stop and remember their history with God. And it wasn't like they didn't have a history with God. And they were then to remind themselves that what he had always been to them, he would continue to be. And what he had always been to them was absolutely, unfailingly faithful. And it's true of us, too. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, they're all favorites. It just depends on what I'm preaching at the moment. <laughs> but I love them all. I love some of them. Some of them I have a deeper history with God on than others. It's kind of a sad verse. It's a real melancholy attached to it. God spoke it to his people through the prophet Malachi at a time when the Jews were bringing God's sacrifices that were unworthy of him. They were bringing him as their junk. They were bringing him sacrifices and animals that were lame and, 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 and sick and stolen instead of lambs that were without spot and without blemish. None of this was worthy of God. And God rose up through the prophet Malachi and he declared to the children of Israel, to his own people, he declared, I am a great God. Nobody else was saying it, so God had to say it about himself. Even his own people weren't saying it about him. So he's forced so that that witness of him isn't lost in that time in human history to stand up and declare it of himself I am a great God. And let me declare here this morning, across every circumstance that's represented in this room, our Lord is a great God, and He is worthy of our faith in the midst of the trouble that we face. So first He told them to trust in Him. And then second, I love it, he sat them down and he told them a little bit about home, a little bit about heaven in verses 2 and 3. He reminded these disciples that there is a heaven on the other side of all of these troubles in life. And then he proceeded to tell them a little bit about this heaven that he wanted them and us to know. Notice in verse 2 that he called heaven my father's house. Heaven is a father's house. I'm glad for the description of it. 
in Revelation chapter 4. I love to read of the throne and the glassy sea and the four living creatures and the crowns that are tossed before the Lord there on that glassy sea. All of the angels, all of the praise and worship and, it, and heaven is all of that and it's more than that. But when Jesus spoke of heaven, he called it a father's house. I like that. He told him in verses 2 and 3 that heaven is a prepared place. This brings me back to one of those things that I heard as a young Christian that has never ceased to impact me. There's a lot of things that we hear in our Christian life that we wish every time we heard them, we were hearing them for the first time. Because then we hear them the second time, the third time, the tenth time, the twentieth time, and they don't hold the impact that they ought to have in our lives. But I remember the first time, and I think all of you have heard it, most of you anyway, in terms of this, all of this concerning the heaven that awaits us. As we look at the creation around us and that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. Can you imagine what heaven is going to be like where Jesus has been preparing it for us for 2,000 years? It's really, really going to be something. Now, one of the frustrations that God's people sometimes have with the Bible is that it doesn't tell us as much about heaven as we would like to know. But the fact of the matter is, that he has told us all that we really need to know about heaven and that it is a prepared place and that he, this Jesus that we love, is doing the preparing. And if he's been 2,000 years preparing it for us, what a place it must be. I think the fact of the matter is we couldn't handle knowing more than what we do know. About heaven. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. And he said I reckon. Didn't know he was from Texas. He said I reckon that the sufferings of this present time. Are not worthy to be compared with the glory. That shall be revealed in us. That word reckon is an interesting word. It means to weigh in the balance. It means to take one thing and put it on one side of the balance and put another thing on the other side of the balance. Paul said, I know suffering, I know hardship, I know trial, I know trouble, I know agitation. I know it as much as anyone I know that knows it. And you can put that on one side of the balance. And you can put glory, the glory of heaven on the other side of the balance. And I'm telling you, they're not worthy to be compared one with the other. Well, who made Paul the big expert on heaven? God did. Paul wrote in his second epistle to the Corinthians. And he said, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He said, I know a man in Christ, speaking of himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know. Or whether out of the body, I don't know. God knows. For such a one was caught up into the third heaven. That's him. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. 
how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which are not lawful for a man to utter. Paul said, what I saw in terms... In fact, he didn't say that. He said, didn't even speak of what he saw. He said, what I heard spoken in heaven. If I were to try and communicate it in human language, I would mar it. I would ruin it. The human language is insufficient to describe what you will even hear in heaven, heaven to speak nothing of what we will see in heaven. He said, you put one on the one side and the other on the other side in that reckoning. And they're not worthy to be compared one with another. Paul would have probably agreed with Vance Havner on this when he said, there are a lot of questions that the Bible doesn't answer about the hereafter. But I think one, of the, one reason is illustrated by the story of a boy sitting down to a bowl of spinach when there's a chocolate cake at the end of the table. He's going to have a rough time eating that spinach when his eyes are on the cake. And if the Lord had explained everything to us about what's ours to come, I think we'd have a rough time with our spinach down here. I believe it. Jesus is also telling us and telling the disciples that this world is not our home. Heaven is our home. I don't think we can be reminded of that enough as Christians. This world is not our home. This is not as good as it gets for us. This life will be the hardest part of our life, our everlasting life. We're strangers and pilgrims, the Bible says, on our way home. And I think the best of us can forget it at the world's worst time. It's a very famous pastor by the name of Pastor Chriswell of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. God used him to build one of the most influential churches for the kingdom in all of the United States. And Pastor Chriswell told a story of when Theodore Roosevelt was president and he went on a hunting safari to Africa. And on his return to the United States by boat, there was a missionary on the boat who was retiring after 40 years of service in a very remote jungle village. And he was traveling on the same boat back home to the United States. When that boat docked New York City, there's all the crowd of cheering throng and the, here is the chief executive, the president of the United States and everyone there to greet him and all of the fanfare, but not a single person there to welcome the returning missionary. Dr. Criswell said momentarily the man of God was filled with self-pity. He said to himself, when a president comes home after a short hunting trip, hundreds come out to greet him. But Lord, when one of your missionaries comes home after a lifetime of service, there's no one here to greet him. And immediately the Lord spoke to his heart and said, my son, you're not home yet. And we need that reminder concerning this life. Jesus tells us here that heaven, that we are headed for a very real heaven. It's sure. I think that's worthy of a long walk. To take a walk and to just stop and remember that heaven is real. It exists. And we are headed to that very real heaven. 
to realize that one day it's not going to be teaching from the Bible, as wonderful as that is, or merely teaching of, in a sermon. That, but one day that this very scene that we read about described in the word of God, one day we're going to stand on that glassy sea. One day we're going to be there. We're going to be before that throne. We're going to cast the crown before our Father's feet. It's a real place and we're headed there. I like what Jesus said there in verse 2. He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. I will come and receive you, verse 3, again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. When Jesus speaks of heaven and its future place in our lives, he's not feeding us with a false hope. These people need some kind of, you know, mental trickery or some kind of an illusion to believe in to get them through all the troubles that they're going to go through. Jesus said, I wouldn't have told you about this if it wasn't true. Heaven is real. And Jesus promises to personally take us there. That's his promise. And he keeps his promises. Jesus is calling on these disciples not to think about their lives only in terms of this side of heaven, but in the light of the fact that our lives are going to extend into heaven itself. He wants us to look at our lives in the context of eternity, to look at our right now in the context of eternity, to look at our trials and our difficulties in the context of eternity. When we think of everlasting life or we think of eternal life, many of us as Christians, we can tend to think that that's something that starts when we die. The Bible teaches that once we become a Christian, we possess everlasting life. We possess that now. Our lives are never going to end. We will never cease to exist. We have everlasting life presently. And Jesus' teaching here reminds us of that fact. It's not something we're going to get one day. It's something that we possess now. I once had the privilege, and I don't know how many of you had. If it weren't for this thing that had been arranged, I probably never would have had the privilege. But I had the privilege one time of hearing Warren Wiersbe speak at a conference. And during that series of three teachings, he declared that for the Christian, he said, heaven isn't just a destination. He said, it's a motivation. It's intended to influence our lives right now. It's not just something that's to affect us one day when we die. Vance Hafner, he put it this way. He said, Christians are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven but citizens of heaven making their way through this world. And Jesus is trying to nurture that kind of perspective in the disciples. The most effective of God's servants in this life and in human history have been those who have been influenced the most by heaven, by eternity. I think of Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11. For he waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. 
speaking of heaven. What was one of the things that got Abraham through all of the things that he went through? An eternal perspective. I think of Moses. We're told that by faith Moses, Hebrews 11, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And here's the reason why. For he looked to the reward. What caused him to walk away not only from the treasures of Egypt, but then to introduce himself into a life with God's people to endure affliction with the people of God. It was the eternal reward of following God. He looked to the reward. I think of the Apostle Paul. And which of us doesn't have enormous respect for the Apostle Paul as a Christian. You look at his life and you think, what, what made that guy tick? How was it that he understood God that would allow him to endure all of that for the cause of Christ? An amazing Christian, the Apostle Paul. And I know one of the things that helped him get through all the things that he got through, that was an eternal perspective. He wrote to the church at Philippi and he said, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote in his, among his final words in his second letter to Timothy, and he said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I think of the Apostle Peter in this vein, how dominated he was by heaven. In his first epistle, chapter 1 Verse 1, he wrote to Christians reminding them of this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He went on to say in that second chapter of that same epistle, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. And then finally, near the very end, of his second epistle and among his final words, he said, therefore, since all these things, speaking of this world, are going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will meet with fervent heat? He said, nevertheless, we... According to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I think of Jesus himself, as is written in Hebrews chapter 12. And therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. 
looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the eternal glory on the other side of the cross, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And each one of them lived their earthly lives dominated by the thought of the reality of a future heaven that they would one day participate in. C.S. Lewis wrote, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. I'm sure you've heard the saying where people talk about Christians and they say, well, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. I know what they're trying to say, but I emphasize trying. Because I have never met a Christian, not one time, who is heavenly minded that has not, as a result of that, been of enormous earthly good. I don't think that that person exists, that that saying is wor worried about trying to expose. The fact of the matter is, it's only as we are heavenly minded that we can be of any real earthly good. And so Jesus is telling us, that all of the troubles that can fill our hearts in this world as his disciples, there's a lot of troubles that can fill our hearts. They're going to be immediately forgotten when he takes us home to be with him in heaven. So would you notice that so that where I am, Jesus said, there you may be also. Heaven is going to be heaven because Jesus is there. That's what's going to make heaven the heaven that it is. Someone wrote, we talk about the gates of pearl and the streets of gold and the walls of jasper and we're thrilled. But those things should not, those things would not be attractive if Jesus were not there. His presence is what will make heaven such a grand place. And finally, Jesus is telling us in this passage that we will be with him forever. That heaven for us is going to go on forever and ever and ever. Eternity is a long time. I think that's another subject that we don't think about often enough in this culture. To think about eternity. We'll never grasp it. Because that's an infinite subject and we've got a finite mind. But it's worth the effort and accomplishes something good in us. The fact that heaven is forever and ever. Sometimes people try and explain eternity in terms of time-space continuums. Things like that. I've heard people do that. Soon as somebody, and God bless you if you do that and it's how you work. But when people start to talk to me about time, space, continuums and this and that, I feel like I'm back in school in a very bad way. 
And in about 15 seconds, my eyes glaze and I try to give proper attention so they don't realize that I'm thinking about what I can do as soon as I get away from this conversation with them. I need simpler illustrations. Eternity is going to last longer than a box of jujubes. Those last a long time. There's a guy by the name of Hendrik Van Loon. I just like his name. He put it this way. He said, high up in the north, in the land of Svithjad, there stands a rock. It is 100 miles high and 10 miles wide. And once every 1,000 years, a little bird comes to this rock to sharpen its beak. And when that rock is worn away by that little bird, only a single day of eternity will have gone by. Now that I like. Of course, I like birds. Heaven. For the Christian, heaven is not just to be a destination. It is to be a motivation. And it is to be an inspiration. And so often as Christians, our lives are so dominated by the trials and the demands of right now that we can cease to think enough about heaven. And Jesus wants us to think about heaven so that we'll maintain perspective in this life. There is a heaven and an eternal reward on the other side of all of this. Don't forget that. And when the circumstances of our lives cause our hearts to be troubled, Jesus wants us to do two things. To trust in the Lord, to put trust in him to be to us in that situation. What he has always been to us, and that is faithful. I will confess before you publicly that every minute of time I have spent worrying in my Christian life, it has been a complete waste of time. Once God was able to express the fullness of his faithfulness in that situation. As we face the things that we face in this life, to remember to trust in the Lord who will be faithful in this new circumstance that we find ourselves in that's troubling us because we've never been there before and thus we don't have a history with God there yet. We will have a history with God there, a history of his faithfulness. And then, two, to remember that this is not our home. Heaven is our home. And we're headed there. And good things await us there that will go on forever and ever and ever and ever uninterrupted. Let's stand together and we'll pray.